here we are. Banks. I mean, these are kook, cult, demons, got, hardcore, evil. I mean, these people are flaming scum, wild, crazy, dangerous really people, just like the Nazis, the Soviets, all of them. Pol Pot killing 31% of Cambodia, murdering anybody that can read or write or wear glasses. You're like, why'd he do that? Because he's a flaming loon. I was trying to figure out where we were, and I remember on the end of the last episode, we talked about how Lenin was given a train ride over uh, into right. Russia. Yes. And at some point, obviously, and we will talk about this later, even though it technically will happen earlier than what we're going to talk about today, or at least parts of what we're going to talk about today. Um, but we left off on Lenin being shipped by the German government through various countries uh, and into Russia where they believed he would be able to start to foment a revolution so that it would undermine... Uh, the Romanov dynasty, well, more like the provisional government uh, taking over for the Romanov dynasty in their conduct during World War I. Hmm. Uh, so we were going to depart from that today because if the listeners like, they can go back and listen to that episode uh, in relation to maybe two episodes from now because we will be doing this for a while longer. This is, oh, this yeah. is war, a, a very serious war we're talking about. Uh, today, I want to take a completely different perspective. Um, we talked, we started this. So here's what I realized. Here's the, and I was formulating this thought while I was walking my dog earlier as to why I seem to approach uh, this particular revolution in this way, where it's just like, can we ever get to the Bolsheviks? No, we can't. <laughs> we'll never really get to the Bolsheviks because <laughs> there's so much to know to get to the Bolsheviks that we may never get there. What I realized I like doing Dutch is, and, and I realized this. Yeah. Well, that too. <laughs> well, that's part of it in a way is we'll never get to the Bolsheviks because actually that's, that's a good way to pivot into this All is right. uh, I realized that the kind of history I like to read and the kind of um, stories that I like to be told are stories about, situations and events told through the perspective of a single person living through them. Mm -hmm. And we did that for Nicholas. We talked all about Nicholas's life during the October revolution. So we yep. talked about, I gave people an understanding of the October revolution using Sean McMeekin's history of the Re Russian revolution, new history of the Russian revolution right. from a first, hopefully more like uh, first third person perspective. It never really left him. Uh, but it was always about what was going on around him. So then we did Lenin, same thing. Uh, we did Kerensky, same thing. Talked about the history of what they were doing through them. We're going to do that again today. But for a person, this is what's funny. So this is a Russian Revolution episode that's not going to take place in Russia for the vast majority of it. Um, okay. We're going to be talking today about a completely different person uh, who plays kind of an unspoken but incredibly important role in the Bolshevik revolution's solidifying power. Now, we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about who the person is today. This will be a two-parter for sure, because this individual is rarely spoken about, but uh, he will get his treatment today as one of the most important people to take part in this revolution, or really the post-revolution. We're going to talk today about a German man named Willy Munzenberg. Now, that name, you probably hear that and you go, who? <laughs> yeah. uh, a name that I will promise you by the end of the second part of this 
mini series we're going to do within the Russian Revolution, you're going to realize how important he was to the Bolsheviks. Uh, Vili Munzenberg is a name that is uh, seldom remembered today, but there was a time about a hundred and so years ago where even the utterance of his name uh, would provoke fear, loathing, admiration among all people, especially the world's political classes. At the height of his influence, Willy Munzenberg controlled from his Berlin headquarters a seemingly invincible network of communist front organizations, charities, publishers, newspapers, magazines, theaters, film studios, and cinema houses, which stretched, on paper at least, from Buenos Aires to Tokyo. Many of the interwar period's most famous intellectuals, including Upton Sinclair, Albert Einstein, and many others, came under Willy Munzenberg's ever-expanding organizational spell. The Nazi journalist Joseph Goebbels, who also operated out of Berlin, admired and feared his communist rival's propaganda machine, and when Hitler came to power in 1933... He consulted him several times on how to approach his new job of solidifying the German people. Hmm. To his legion of admirers, Willy Munzenberg was a singular beacon of hope for a war-ravaged Europe and a hero whose fundraising campaigns built bridges between the ever-fragile Soviet experiment in proletarian government and Western socialists. To his critics, Munzenberg was a dangerous media demagogue who preyed on naive fellow traveling sympathizers to reap a personal fortune, which the author, uh, Sean McMeekin, who I'm using as a source for this, the sole source for this, uh, Mm -hmm. refers to as a communist Hugenberg or a red millionaire. And that's the title of the book, Red Millionaire. It's a fantastic book. I got about well, I got through that part one of it, and that's what this is. We will be doing the part two in a later episode, which is, you'll see why the part two needs its own episode. It's, uh, it gets uh, off the rails very quickly. Uh, let's talk about Willy Munzenberg. So Willy Munzenberg, go look him up on your cell phones if you're listening on a cell phone. If you're not, get your cell phone and look him up there. It's just the easiest way to do it. Munzenberg. Especially uh, if you're driving, be, right away. Yeah, do that especially if you're driving, yes. Uh, Munzenberg would be an M, a U with an umlaut, an N, a Z, an E, an N, a B, E, R, G, Munzenberg. There's your Munzenberg. Willy Munzenberg will come up, take pictures of him, look at him. Very German looking, strong uh, chin, very strong chin. Um, Not many pictures of the guy in existence, but there are a few. Willy Munzenberg was born on the 14th of August in 1889. Happens to be the same year Hitler was born. In Erfurt, a charming little village in uh, 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 southeastern Prussia uh, in an area known as Thuringia. Uh, the principal uh, and almost unrivaled influence on Willy's early development was his father, uh, himself a son of a hot-tempered and hard-drinking Prussian junker, uh, Baron von Seckendorf, who was, uh, the uh, for a moment, uh, took advantage of his chambermaid, Karl Munzenberg's mother, Karl Munzenberg seems to have inherited the Baron's recklessness without, however, the latter's wealth and social standing. Powerfully built and easily angered, Karl Munzenberg slept with loaded guns hanging over his bed, and he was known for retrieving them from his bedroom for emphasis if disputes arose when his friends uh, had problems during a card game. Uh, He was not above using them to threaten his wife or child either. Of course, what we know about Willi's father comes only from Willi's 
autobiographical writings, all of which are tailored in some form to the socialist cause. And so all of these horror stories of the bourgeois patriarchal decadence have to be taken with a grain of salt. At the age of 15, Vili gains employment at a local barber shop, but after a spat with a new arrival leading to his brief hospitalization when he's hit in the head with a brick, Vili oh, refuses shit. to turn to the uh, return to his uh, former place of humiliation and moves to a small town in Weimar, Germany, uh, where the economy is booming and many unskilled workers are needed. And within a few weeks, he gets a job at a shoe factory where he begins to spend most of his evenings carousing uh, around town with his newfound companions, the friends that he makes at that job. Inspired by the Freemasons, young Vili and his friends uh, seek to become a free-floating group of companions and dream of instituting their own secret society. And according to Munzenberg, uh, would have drunk each other's blood to pledge brotherhood if they had been able to do so. Uh, but they bought some wine instead. And short of entwining their collective fate in blood, they create a social club in which Munzenberg is president. And he remains that way for a little bit of time, dedicating the club to soccer and card game playing. So you can see early on, Vili is interested in organizing. He's about 18 year old at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, one day, an older worker from the shoe factory in which Vili works informs him that there is a debate club forming in a nearby bar. The debate club is known as the Workers' Educational Association for Propaganda, and it was held at a pub which was pretty close to the factory. Neither Munzenberg nor his, co nor his cohorts knew what the word propaganda meant, but it conjured up sufficiently dark images of underground activities and secret handshakes that four or five of them resolved to visit the pub together. Although he had been too shy to speak up at the first of the meetings he attended, Munzenberg's evident curiosity and serious bearing had made an impression on the propaganda's chairman, George Schumann. Schumann was a radical who was dissatisfied with the moderate political practice of the German Social Democratic Party. When he learned through contacts in Munzenberg's shoe factory that the silent young man who'd showed up several times at the propaganda meetings had taken ill, Schumann began to visit Willi regularly, bringing him books, newspapers, and other reading materials to keep him occupied. And not incidentally, Schumann is the one who introduces Willi to Marxist doctrine and Marxist literature. Although he was indifferent uh, in primary school, Willi always loved reading and he devoured Schumann's texts uh, rapidly. After Munzenberg started dragging more of his unskilled factory worker comrades down to the bar on Grafensgasse, the demographics of Schumann's uh, debating society were altered drastically. By the following summer, the Workers' Association, now christened the Erfurt Freijugend, or Free Youth, uh, counted more than 30 members, twice as many as when Willi joined. When he first began to recruit colleagues from the factory to join the Free Youth, Willi later recalled, quote, It was almost as if I was overcome with propaganda fever and I wouldn't <laughs> let up until almost the last worker in my workplace joined the association and came to the meetings. George Schumann could not have chosen a better acolyte. By promoting youth... To your accent, by the way. <laughs> Thank That's you. That's amazing. <laughs> By promoting youth radicalism, Schumann and others like him were playing with fire and they knew it. Nothing could have frightened German conservatives more than the prospect of teenagers who were indoctrinated in socialist theory 
performing, uh, or rather refusing to perform military service, especially during a time of war. And so Vili and many others were eventually arrested for their participation in the free youth movement after uh, this law of free association uh, is passed. Uh, basically what it does is it, um, if you're under a certain age, you're not allowed to publicly organize. If you're over a certain age, you are allowed to publicly organize to a greater extent. So basically it's a weird law that they created. And I think it was created with the intention of knowing Germany wasn't going to hold on for much longer. Um, that they basically were like, they rose the drinking age essentially, but they, but it was as if they rose the drinking age, but for the people who could drink, they made beer cheaper. Just doesn't make sense to me, but not not a great move. But Germany's not making some great decisions at this time, as you can imagine. Munzenberg, upon hearing that his arrest merited an article from Erfurter Anziger, which is a popular newspaper in the town, Vili uh, felt proud, achieving a modicum of local fame. Of course, it was not only policemen and the SPD bureaucrats who had looked askance at Vili's increasingly belligerent proselytizing after he took over the free youth. In the Lingel Shoe Factory, a different shoe factory, Munzenberg's first imprisonment for political radicalism in 1907 led to a warning that he would be fired if arrested again. This did not stop him from continuing quietly to recruit in the factory for Erfurt Free Youth, nor from fraudulently obtaining two days' leave to attend the Berlin Socialist Youth Congress in December 1908. Uh, he uh, recounts gleefully in his autobiography, that he got an excuse by killing off a non-existent aunt, <laughs> which I think is kind of funny. Uh, unemployed uh, and with the local job market closing in on him uh, as they start to realize he's more and more radical, uh, Vili sets off from Erfurt with several friends for several weeks after his 20th birthday to, quote, tramp the country, planning a, cor a course to the southwest through Hessen, and the Lower Rhine Valley towards Alsace-Lorraine and into France. Uh, there, uh, his somewhat fanciful mind presumed, and he would find better work in a new life without hassles from the Prussian police and the paternalistic despots of the German SPD. Uh, when Munzenberg, uh, in, in uh, 1909, circulates a petition through the uh, shoe factory of, in the town, uh, he asks fellow workers to endorse a general strike in Sweden, and that's when he was finally given his walking papers. So he loses his job. He travels around Europe for a little while, doing nothing in particular, keeping his head down, because at this point he's a radical who can't really get a lot of work. We skip ahead towards the year 1918. So we are back in the present, if you will. Uh, this is the important year that we've been talking about this whole time. And in 1918, Munzenberg, having traveled around the country for nearly a decade, uh, flees the, eventually flees the city of Württemberg as a fugitive, commits a crime, uh, and the police want after him, and so he leaves. After joining the Spartacist Party, which was organized by Leon Trotsky, this is in Germany, of course, so it's just an offshoot of the Russian one, his radical but, reputation began to catch up with him in the conclusion of World War I. And the grand German disillusionment with the results of World War I brought about a human chaos that was ripe for exploitation, with anonymity unmatched. I'm just putting a visible pause in because I need to go. I just realized that I left water boiling for tea and I don't think my mom knows, so I'm going to go and fix that right now. Give me oh, one second. Yes. Actually, while Bert is boiling water or stopped boiling water, I'm going to boil myself some water as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, at the risk of not burning my house down. <coughs> I may continue. <clears throat> All right, I'm good. Already, the inflation had begun to erode moral restraints, making a mockery of thrift and modesty and putting a premium on conspicuous consumption. Berlin was rapidly becoming Europe's post-war Babylon, with all the nightclubs, dance cabarets, exuberant pornography, and plenty of women renting their bodies to any man who could afford them. Count Harry Kessler, who was a charismatic Prussian aristocrat named the Red Count for his socialist sympathies, described living in post-war Berlin as dancing on a volcano. Berlin was not quite so fun, of course, for those who couldn't afford to live the good life, but the city still offered plenty of political excitement for struggling exiles and conspirators seeking refuge in its vastness. I like to think of, and it kind of sucks because they didn't know at the time, but uh, I think a lot of us probably know what, what this period in Berlin leads to. But man, 1919 Berlin sounds like a very, very fun place. I have to say, I was reading about it. Like, it sounds like New York in the 70s. Like, it just sounds like a, a hellhole, like a fun hellhole. It's a shame that the Nazis take over after that, but, you know, tis what it is. Hello, listeners. While Dutch makes some tea and I prevent uh, my house from burning down, uh, I want to read to you something. This is a Dutch phrase book. <laughs> I can't do this. No, not happening.
Yes. Ah, all right. Apologies for the hole out there. Oh, no problem. I didn't know that you were gone, so I had continued, and then I was like, I said something that he definitely would have reacted to. He can't be there. And then I looked down, and I saw that you were making tea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've had my fill of booze already for tonight, so... What kind of tea? It's a little late for tea, is it not, sir? What the fuck? When is it ever too late for tea? That's a very European thing to say. I hope you know that. <laughs> yeah, it's really, you're playing into a stereotype there for sure. That's hilarious. So, um, <coughs> ah, let me get that out. Whew. Good Lord. I didn't realize this, but, um, you know, we talked about the roaring 20. All right. Actually, let me do this after I get to the point that I wanted to read up to. I'm going to, I'm going to read again and then I will, exp I, I, there's, uh, I can't find a fair description of it, but apparently I'm going to just tell you this and I'll cut it off and we'll do a few seconds of pause so I could see it and I'll cut that too. Um, but apparently we talk about the United States in the 1920s being known as a period of time called, um, 
the Roaring Twenties. Yes, I've heard like, of this. Okay. In Germany, they had the same thing in the 20s, um, which I did not realize. But in the 20s, Germany was basically going through its own, like, culture golden age. I, I didn't know that. But um, I was just reading something that I had written down from the book, and it, it made me go, man, I'd like to see if I could find a good description of, like, you know, some journalist writing what it was like to be in Berlin in the year 1919. Because it just sounds like a fucking cool period of time. But it doesn't have anything to do with the Russian Revolution. So maybe we'll do that in a separate episode. <laughs> in a bonus, of course. In the 1920s? That's like right after World War One. Sounds like a pretty yeah, shit place to be. No, what? apparently it was like like uh, chaos. Like it was like... Uh, and I said this, and you... This is when I realized you weren't listening. It reminds me of New York in the 70s. Like it okay. was... Uh, like the police had no control over anything. The money was worth nothing. Nobody had any jobs, but the arts were booming. It was violence in the streets. It was a like a chaotic period of time that like is also incredibly probably fun to live through, um, which is not what I was always told about Germany um, in the 20s. I was always told they were suffering, starving, burning money for heat. No, they were doing lots of drugs and living life in the nightclubs. And uh, I was never told that, which is weird because you always think about the psychology of the German leading up to fascism, because you always think about how the French and the English and the Americans at the exit of World War One bullied their economy into them like suffering and starving to death, which is certainly, of course, the case is that's true. But they weren't suffering. They were going nuts like they were kind of doing the opposite of what you would think if you were hungry. No, they were doing lots of drugs, dancing and partying every night, melting their brains. And that's just a thing I've never, that's never been depicted to me before. Um, kind of weird. It makes me think a lot about the United States today, actually, <laughs> and how uh, it seems like we're constantly melting our brains on shit because the world sucks. Um, but uh, anyway, I thought that was quite interesting. So apparently, yes. Uh, skipping ahead, I believe I read this already, so I'll just do it again with a few moments of pause. Pausing is for homosexuals. Okay, that was good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right, so, skipping ahead to the year 1918, Munzenberg had been traveling around the country for nearly a decade when he was finally forced to flee the city of Württemberg as a fugitive. After joining the Spartacist Party, uh, the Youth International is what we'll call it, which was organized by Leon Trotsky, or at least the original one was organized by Leon Trotsky, uh, his radical reputation began to catch up with him in the conclusion of World War I. The Grand German Disillusionment uh, with the results of World War I brought about a human chaos that was ripe for exploitation, with anonymity unmatched. Already, the inflation had begun to erode moral constraints making a mockery of thrift and modesty and putting a premium on conspicuous consumption. Berlin was rapidly becoming Europe's post-war Babylon, with all-night dance cabarets, exuberant pornography, and plenty of women renting their bodies to any man who could afford them. Count Harry Kessler, a charismatic Prussian aristocrat nicknamed, quote, the Red Count for his socialist sympathies, described living in post-war Berlin as, quote, Dancing on a volcano. See, that's okay. what I that 
makes me laugh. Like I, I, yeah. I really like that. Like I wish I could have found a good description from Harry Kessler about it, but I may just do a little side podcast reading it on my own. Cause I love situations like this cities like this when people are just going nuts. Uh, anyway, Berlin, of course, uh, might not have been as fun for those who couldn't afford the good life, but the city still offered plenty of political excitement for struggling exiles and conspirators seeking refuge in its vastness, which to me is far more exciting than any of the dancing, cabaret, or pornography. Munzenberg arrived in the Prussian capital without papers in late October 1919, and immediately rented uh, rooms in different parts of the city to keep the Prussian police guessing as much as possible as to his whereabouts. So this guy is already, uh, you know, uh, make your own communist. Like they, they want to get him. So uh, he's already starting right. to live that life. And he's now lovingly devoting his time to putting together lo- the logistics uh, for an underground youth organization, which he's calling the youth international uh, in a head nod to Trotsky. And on the 20th of November of 1919, youth delegates from all over Europe, including a large Russian delegation, met in the back room of a pub in the working class district of Neukölln. Although the Berlin Conference was a success, the terms of entry into the new Youth International were not to everyone's liking. Munzenberg laced his speeches in Berlin with oblique attacks on deviant tendencies in the movement, excoriating the petite bourgeois ideas of pacifist and intellectual youth circles. Properly trained, youth communists would become the vanguard of the Red Party, as he claimed, and later, quote, confidence men in their national communist parties. But far from fighting heroically for the autonomy of youth groups, Munzenberg, in fact, wanted his charges to resign themselves to a complementary role in international communism. Big head nod to Trotsky there. To realize that they must, quote, march side by side with their adult revolutionary comrades. Munzenberg's specific political goal at the Berlin Conference was to purge the wartime youth international of unreliable sections who were thinking of joining the revived Second International, convened in Bern at the urging of British socialists early in 1919. So that was one. I'm not sure if Marx was alive, but oh, he might have been. You know what? Uh, Marx, when did he die? No, he wasn't there. Damn. Too late. The second working is man. I was going to say, he, he, I know that the second international was inspired by, oh, we talked about the second international. The second international was the first international communist party organized movement to come after Marx's death. It was the first attempt after Marx's death to formulate Marxism. So Munzenberg is out there going, no, 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 don't go to that. Come to us. Do this thing instead. Which, uh, I mean, that makes sense considering that, you know, Marx at those meetings was much more of a libertarian than someone like Trotsky or Lenin. And clearly these countries are at the urge of fighting war, so they would like something a little more beefed up, I suppose. Well, there you go. Uh, The Prussian police still hadn't found any of Munzenberg's various flats in Berlin, but he had still to be careful when moving throughout the city. And little correspondence or other materials survive from this period, but we may surmise that Munzenberg was reasonably successful in staying underground because he had no run-ins with the police uh, in spring of 1920. During this period, Munzenberg became increasingly dissatisfied with James Reich, a.k.a. Thomas, 
the liaison man for the Comintern's Western European Bureau, who had set up a Bolshevik front in the Charlottenburg bookshop on Leibzenstrasse, which he used to distribute cash and advice to the KPD brass. Munzenberg disliked Thomas, a short, somewhat awkward man most communists called Fatty, and in the sentiment seemed to have been mutual. <laughs> Munzenberg didn't enjoy being dependent on Thomas for official Comintern funds, although he frequently circumvented WEB by getting uh, casual handouts from a man named Carl Moore, who was a rich communist benefactor. Though, uh, and Thomas, in turn, wasn't excited about extending this largesse to someone like Munzenberg. The only way to resolve such an impasse, of course, was to go to Moscow. And luckily for Munzenberg, the Second Congress of the Comintern was scheduled to meet in July of 1920. Invited once more to represent the Youth International in Moscow, he had been detained, or actually, he was invited once more uh, to represent the Youth International in Moscow because he had been t been detained uh, in prison in the previous year. This time, Munzenberg was certain that he could secure a direct patronage link by hitting up his old Bolshevik friends. But he almost didn't make it. <coughs> this one, this is a crazy fucking story. I read this and my jaw was open. On the night before he was scheduled to leave Berlin, Munzenberg was arrested while sitting in a cafe and taken directly to police headquarters where he was presented with the Stuttgart warrant from 1919. So back when he was in Stuttgart, he was arrested for organizing um, factory workers into general strikes. Which of course, right. absolutely not okay uh, during this period of time. Um, so he gets arrested. He does his time. Uh, sorry, he actually flees the Stuttgart warrant. Um but the Stuttgart warrant does not make it out of Stuttgart. They keep it there for whatever reason, because this is before the internet. So they just keep the warrant there. And along with another uh, runaway from a different town, he had a draft evasion in 1917. So the German government had tried to draft him into the war to get him out. You know, this is, this is what they tried to do to get all the communist revolutionaries out was to just get him killed at the front. Um, he evaded it fled to Stuttgart, uh, where he got another warrant for organizing the factory workers. So now he's got two on him. When he's sitting in this cafe in Berlin, he gets arraigned, or rather he gets taken in on those two warrants, and he was arraigned the following morning. Munzenberg finds himself hauled into court with about 40 or so, as he describes, petty thieves and pimps arrested in the previous evening. Uh, and in his pristine manner, so he's dressed in a whole suit. He was at a cafe. Of course. In his pristine manner, he immediately, this is what he describes. He, he believes he stands out from the others. And the judge says to him, what is this jovial old man? Or, or rather, he describes him as a jovial old man. He asks him, what is this, you know, well-dressed young man doing among all of these people? So when the judge who did not recognize Munzenberg's name from the newspapers, finds his file. The 1917 warrant is what's sitting on top. So Munzenberg in the court, before they go to find his file, Munzenberg in the courtroom says to the judge, you know, these 
cops arrested me because in 1917 I had a draft evasion. Right. And which, which by 1919, a lot of Germans were like kind of turning against that. And there were many liberal judges. So yeah. the judge goes to find the file. And that 1917 warrant is the one that's sitting on top of the most recent documentation. So the old man looks at it and he goes, oh, you're free to go. So he leaves and they discover the mistake the next day. But by the time that the police go back to where he was staying, he was already crossing the Baltic Sea. Shit. He was disguised as a Russian war prisoner who was being repatriated to the Soviet Union. Fucking and up. they get him out and he goes to uh, the Soviet Union uh, because he's been invited by the Bolsheviks. So they take him on this incredible grand tour of Russia along with all these other communist German communists who are posing as Russian uh, um, war prisoners. Because remember, at this time in Russia, there's a lot of anti-German sentiment going on. So these guys are super useful at organizing the Germans into a communist revolution. So they want them there, but they need to keep everything about this low key. So they do. And they take this tour of the Ukraine, of um, Estonia, Lithuania, they finally arrive. It's an incredible tour. Like there's a whole account of it that I read, but it wasn't super relevant to like, it doesn't uh, tell you anything about what happens in Moscow, which is where they eventually get to. <clears throat> so after the Bolsheviks evacuate the European Petrograd, uh, which I don't know why it's specified as European Petrograd. Ah, this is why. So after the Bolsheviks are evacuated from European Petrograd for the ancient Russian capital of Muscovy, Moskva, as we talked about in 1918, uh, the Moscow Kremlin very quickly becomes a mythical location for socialists all over the world. Lenin's embattled communist regime is holed up in it uh, from all of the domestic and foreign enemies directly outside. And there really are many domestic and foreign enemies outside. Outside of the gates of the Kremlin, the war's still going on in 1918, mm -hmm. uh, both domestically and abroad. And there was uh, first an armed white resistance to the Red Rule launched by General Alexiev and Kornilov. You'll remember those names. The revolt uh, of the Czechoslovak Legion along with the, along the Trans-Siberian Railway. So they shut down the railway. The establishment of two anti-Bolshevik armies in the east headquartered at Samara and Omsk uh, in uh, Siberia. And the Polish are invading White Russia in the west, which is launched in April of 1920, hoping that they can grab up some territory uh, that the Bolsheviks won't be able to uh, get in time before they can station troops in. Uh, so beyond that, until March of 1920, various white forces were supported by Western allies, chiefly Great Britain, who supplied anti-Bolshevik armies to the north in Murmansk and to the south in Novorolsk, uh, near the Black Sea. So many, many enemies on all sides. So this was a war of self-preservation started off, and it started off poorly for the Bolsheviks, who had foolishly dissolved the imperial army after assuming power in 1917. In November. But the new Red Army, which formed under the war commissar Trotsky, 
1918, ultimately took advantage of the superior manpower reserves, munitions, factories, and railway networks of central Russia. And they were able to turn the tide against the whites, the Czechs, the partisans, and the Poles, who by 1920... July 1920, when the Second Comrade Congress is meeting, all those groups are on retreat. So the first Congress, which had met in March of 1919 while Munzenberg was in jail, had intended to be the coming out party for the world's first communist regime. But due to logistical complications such as war, uh, it was so poorly attended as to become something kind of a farce. By contrast, the second Comintern Congress a year later was attended by over 100 legitimate foreign delegates, some of whom actually represented organized communist parties, although these were mostly still embryonic offshoots of a larger, long-established socialist party. The vastly improved attendance of the second Comintern Congress reflected a dramatic improved military situation. In 1919, the Red Army had pressed the white and allied resistance for most of the year on three separate fronts to the north, south, and east. By spring of 1920, the allies had dropped out of the conflict entirely, and despite continued partisan resistance in the Ukraine, the war was essentially reduced to one major theater against Poland in the west. As Munzenberg and his Spartacist companions rode a wood-fired locomotive east after disembarking at the Estonian port of Narva, they were simply thrilled, as he wrote, after all the dangers and difficulties to stand at last on the soil of the Soviet Union. Munzenberg was furnished with some truly essential materials for his youth secretariat in Berlin. He was given a hoard of diamonds, which he stitched into his cuffs of his jacket. The Kremlin was not merely the new seat of power and prestige in the socialist world, but the unheard of wealth, sacks and sacks of jewelry, which were confiscated from the Romanovs, who in 1917 had been by far the world's richest royal family with an estimated net worth of $9 billion in 1917, the equivalent of over $100 billion today. Holy shit. The Bolsheviks' seizure of these treasures meant they could now offer potentially unlimited patronage to leaders of foreign communist parties. And it also put such foreigners squarely in their place. Moscow was now the master of international communism, and they its loyal servants. Because youth issues had been relatively ignored at the Second Congress, Munzenberg himself did enjoy some breathing space in the coming months when the established socialist parties of Europe were invaded one by one by Comintern emissaries trying to break up their ranks. But Munzenberg's time would come too. Although he was undoubtedly loyal to the Kremlin, and he even published articles in favor of the 21 Conditions, which everybody should look up, important document, Munzenberg planned to keep his youth secretariat headquarters in Berlin. Such geographical distance from Moscow could lead to just the kind of de facto independence from the ECCI that the 21 conditions were designed to squash. Grigory Zinoviev, one of the leaders of the Bolshevik Party in Russia, therefore demanded politely that Munzenberg change the location of the next youth international meeting from Berlin to Moscow. Although wary of alienating his Bolshevik friends, Munzenberg was not ready to give up control of the youth bureau. Privately, he protested Zinoviev's instructions in a personal letter. The ICE... Jesus, there's so many strange letters. The ECCI, he wrote, 
has neither the right nor the cause to move the Youth Bureau Congress to Moscow. Needless to say, ECCI did not agree, and Munzenberg did put up a token uh, protest at uh, Moscow's decision in Youth International, uh, where he wrote about it. But he surely must have known that the game was finally up, and Moscow evidently was determined to undermine his personal control over the Communist Party, just as the SPD has clipped his wings uh, in the pre-war days. The radical youth movement had dominated Munzenberg's life for nearly 15 years, and the loss of the Youth Bureau was deeply upsetting to him. Still, it was not enough to turn him against Moscow. He knew that he enjoyed the confidence of Zinoviev, Radek, and Lenin, and this was by far the most important thing that a communist could have, a single mandate from those men. A man of Munzenberg's experience, talent, inexhaustible political energy, and now mandate from others was invaluable to the Kremlin, and the Bolsheviks refrained from attacking him directly at the Third World Congress in 1921, even as they stripped him of his youth portfolio. Although forced to leave the youth movement behind, Munzenberg was still a loyal servant at Moscow's disposal, and it was not long before Lenin was to find use of him. And there you go. Oh, goddamn. So we talk about a German man by the name of Willy Munzenberg, who uh, works his way up in Germany as a propagandist, youth organizer, average guy who comes from nothing, difficult family, gets arrested a few times, drops out of school. Eventually he becomes uh, very well seen by the Bolshevik party in Russia. So we talk about Lenin there, we end on Lenin, and uh, we will discuss what Lenin does with him. And then I think we might take a break from him, move on to what Lenin does everywhere else uh, up to the point of his death. Then we'll talk about Stalin, uh, how Stalin comes to power, where Stalin comes from. And then we might come back to talk about not the bullshit. What Munzenberg did for Stalin, or rather, right. how right. Munzenberg gets on Stalin's bad side, because St- oh, uh, yeah. Munzenberg does not last long into Stalin. Let's just say, uh, and he is uh, Munzenberg is quite responsible for a lot of the um, propagandizing done by the early Bolshevik uh, uh, party. So right. we will come back to him. We will do him next episode, and then we will leave him and come back to him later on. That's my suspected path. Of course, listeners, this could change at any time, (laughs) but a short one for you of an interesting character. I think very few people have heard of before, uh, who kind of in an interesting way represents the pathway of the average communist, uh, in, especially in Germany at the time, because we know what happens in Germany just a few years after 1919, when things are popping off. Yep. Uh, but, um, for a while there, the communists fighting against the fascists in Weimar, Germany, have a whole story that we don't really talk about. And this is one of those characters who will play a huge role uh, in the propagandizing of the Russian Revolution, or rather the results of the Russian Revolution. So I think he's very important to talk about. Also, a great book, uh, Sean McMeekin's The Red Millionaire. So basically, where we're going to go from here... Is we're going to talk about this guy 
and how he becomes vastly wealthy as a propagandist under Lenin. That's what we're going to talk about next episode specifically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there you go. Oh, damn. All right. That was a short one. Short one, quick to the point, but I have the next one good to go. So you can, you can record it as soon as possible and throw the next one up. Um, but yeah, short one, quick to the point, because I wanted to divert off of the Russian Revolution, but uh, the where I wanted to divert it to was way too uh, off topic, Dutch. Uh, you know, I want to do, um, I want to connect our ancestries here, but I think I'll, <laughs> I think I'll wait on that for a while, uh, and I'll uh, we'll do more Russian Revolution, finish up the Russian Revolution. I think four more episodes, and we'll be done. Do you remember how at the beginning of this, I said, this might be three episodes. I think I might need three. And now what are we? We're going to (laughs) on. This is four. Now we'll have seven or eight, I think. Um, Shit. Well, I remember back when we were like, yeah, we're going to do the French Revolution in one episode. Yeah. Did we? See, what's funny is I kind of don't even remember if we did. I'm not entirely sure either, but I think I don't remember. I did we was it two episodes because we talked about Napoleon, or was that the same thing? No, no, we, two different we episodes. Did bonus episode about Napoleon? Yeah, so it was a oh, it was basically one and a half episodes. Okay, yeah, okay. pretty much. Man, wait and just wait until we fucking do. Um, oh damn it! I don't know the name of it. Just wait until, because I, my intention, ah, my intention to do the great proletarian cultural revolution next, man, wait until we get to that, where I start like having to pronounce Mandarin names and uh, (laughs) like, oh, it's going to get really weird. Cause I think people don't know anything about the Russian revolution because we're not taught about it, but they definitely don't know anything about the cultural revolution. I, I don't know anything about Mao's cultural revolution. Do you? I don't know fuck about the Chinese anyway, except that right. they're yellow and short. So, <laughs> well, uh, and also that Mao had a very awesome voice. Have you ever heard Mao's voice? I think <laughs> we, we looked did? into that one. What the fuck? Oh yeah, he had talked a lot like this. His voice was extremely <laughs> high pitched. He sounds like um, like uh, Murray Rothbard's really ridiculous high pitched voice. Like it's the same thing except Chinese, like speaking in Mandarin. <laughs> same thing. It's right, great. So- so I have lots of plans. We're going to be talking about the Chinese Rothbard. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I would call Mal that. <laughs> <laughs> Just the first voice that comes to mind. Gilbert Godfrey would be another one. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm very excited for where we go from here. But I'm also dying and we need to wrap up the Russian Revolution in one respect or another. So I'm glad that I got to divert from it to talk about this guy I've never heard of before. But we will get back on to that two episodes from now. We're going to do one more Willy Munzenberg. Yes, I am. And it gets really bad because we start to talk about Stalin. And um, man, it gets dark. Needless to say... um, like we could be pussies here and go, Oh, you know, Stalin was a mass murderer, which he was, but like that, we get it. Everybody talks about that. Also, there's like a crazy war that's being fought here. Like, I mean, I, I didn't go into the number of times, for instance, that uh, Willy Munzenberg was arrested. 
or the number of times that he was threatened by the police, which are all detailed in his autobiography. Uh, we don't talk about like the fact that they were fighting the fascists here. And so it's, these people are nuts, like beyond it just being like, they're evil. Like the, like he, for example, I, we made it a point to mention that Willy Munzenberg was born the same year as Hitler. Yeah. Willy Munzenberg was on the opposite side of Hitler. Like that was who he was trying to dissuade people from joining. So like beyond just the idea that Stalin is a bad guy, he's also insane because the, what the communists are going up against at that time, as they see it, is fa- is fascism, which certainly you could, uh, I mean, that can't be argued that that's what they're going up against when they're fighting uh, the Romanovs. When you look at all the genocides that are perpetrated um, by the white army. Um, so the, there's like we went from the Romanovs, I think, being kind of this floating in the sky kind of you know, very lucky monarchism, as you can yeah. see how much money they had, how they were living. Oh, yeah. To a quick descent after that to talking about Kerensky and, you know, Kerensky's kind of international socialism, this sort of bargain between liberalism and communism that was starting to emerge. This, you know, it was an anxious feeling. Then you get to Lenin and it, yeah. it's it's. Like, oh, we just got to kill these people. It, it really is interesting because it goes from gold or let's call it purple because it is the symbol of royalty. It goes from the color purple to the color white to the color red and to the color black is is basically how this story goes. And um, it's only going to get darker from here. So buckle up, listeners. Well, shit. I can't wait to do... Uh... To wrap up the revolu- Russian Revolution in like a year, and then yeah. talk about like the Chinese Cultural Revolution for like another five years. Yeah, well, that's my five-year plan. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that's that's. <laughs> a, I suspect that by February we will be done talking about the Russian Revolution. Sounds about right. I hope. Yes. All anyway. right. Well, thank you, Bird, for. Um, it's not really coming on, I guess, because, I mean. No, I yeah, this, yeah. I'm, I'm just here. I just I don't ever leave. <laughs> I mean, at this point, it's as much like your podcast as my podcast. So I like really... to think I like to think that I I do own a small portion of this podcast specifically for this. Like, if I'm ever <laughs> like Dutch, I want to talk about this. Like you are not allowed to say no. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! Am I gonna be unionized too now? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, might be. Uh, yeah. Well, speaking of that, um, check out the Friends Against Government podcast. Um, we've been unionized, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's gonna get really weird uh, from there. Really weird from there. We have got a lot of strange things to deal with this union on. They, I hear Donald Trump is involved, too. Have you heard this? Uh, yeah, I think I heard you say something about that on your last episode. Or 
Maybe on Twitter. Um, we it might have been on Twitter. We received some troubling audio in the in the mail um, of a uh, one Donald Trump uh, cavorting with a Steve Bannon um, to get us off the air. It's not good. I'm not happy about it. Um, and so, uh, listeners of both Dutch's show and mine, you know, maybe you should tweet at the president and tell him, don't cancel FAGCAST. Don't, yes. don't unionize FAGCAST. Uh, and maybe the president, President Donald Trump will see it and he'll, uh, listen to us. <laughs> That'd be a grand plan to get him to listen to one episode of my show. That'd be, uh, really great. One. I like these guys. <laughs> They're hilarious. <laughs> Bro, I, it would be so hilarious if I could get Donald Trump on. <laughs> I think he would come on. And if he wouldn't, we can always like make a oh, Dutch off air. We have an I have an idea. All right. Um <laughs> Let's wrap this one up. Um Dasvidanya. Uh Yeah, um, any Dutch words you want to say to Say to the Hallo listeners and krijg de tering. Okay, and uh, <laughs> I'll have to look those up in my phrase book when I get a chance. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're in there. <laughs> All right, uh, I did you say go fuck yourself? Uh, the Dutch equivalent. Okay, well, I have kerchtwing, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I like how I'm outroing your show. It's trendy liberal handling and I'm sick of it and I'm calling you out, scum. Oh.